Hey there, EMOE listeners. This episode was recorded at ACOAP's Spring Seminar during a live session with two fantastic guests, Dr. Jamie Hope and Dr. Jenny Bekesme. If you like this type of content, then you'll definitely want to check out ACOAP's future conferences where EM Over Easy will be in full force as the official podcast of ACOAP. And now, on with the show. Let's go to what we wanted to talk about today with the two of you. And we picked this topic because of the two of you. Um, I, I will point blank express that, that like as soon as we said, hey, we're going to have Jamie and Jenny on, we wanted to talk about this particular topic. And the topic is storytelling in medicine and the role it plays both in how we um, tell our stories, but also how we cope with medicine and how we also help teach. And so... Um, if you if you did if you're listening and didn't know one of our people on the sh- on the, right now is uh, Jenny and she has a theater background or a, a musical background not you know not the typical pre med who did biology or chemistry and um, with that got to do some pretty amazing things before she went to medical school and still does some of those things um, if you haven't heard her sing it is amazing and beautiful I got to hear it last year <laughs> at Cord um, but really kind of pose the question is why is story ch- uh, what's the really the background of why why storytelling is part of your background and why you're happy it is and how does it kind of help you in your clinical clinical time. Okay. Uh, well, you kind of already explained a little bit why it's part of my background. So um, storytelling is one element of theater, you know, theater tells stories. Um, but storytelling, like the skill of telling a story is a very specific thing that it's also studied usually by people who are, um, are studying theater. So I have some training in that. But more importantly, I think um, storytelling for me now, why I'm glad it's part of my background is that storytelling is the most classic form of teaching. So we as a species evolved to tell stories to each other as a method of transmitting lessons and information. So we, by adding a story with emotions, we add a way to, you know, a framework to put a lesson or um or a teaching moment into. And I find that bringing that into medicine now, that's why often you will see somebody start a lecture with a case, right? If you start your lecture with a case, you get everybody into the same mindset. We all can kind of think through the case together and you tap into some emotions that then you can lay your teaching on top of. Um, So I love that I have a, a little bit of a background in that, that I can try and bring to my current um, vocation and passion, which is medicine and teaching. And I'll, I'll go. So this is something I don't normally put on my, uh, CV and I don't normally share, uh, cause it is not as amazing as theater, but I was on a sitcom when I was in college about really? college life. It, it was, it, it wasn't, the, it wasn't great. Uh, cause we wrote the, most of the scripts ourselves or we had, uh, you know, other students writing it. So, um, and, but it was broadcast all over the area. And one time, one, I'm at the Michigan State University, huge, huge campus, and I'm walking to class and somebody stopped me. He's like, oh, my God, are you on that show? And I'm like, oh, my God, are you the one person who watches it? Like, I didn't say that, but I was just like, I didn't know anybody actually watched it. Uh, so certainly not that skill level. Um, I, for In terms of singing, I do a really, really good lip sync while Jenny is singing, so it makes me look better. Uh, it's, my, it's my other skill. I don't want to brag. 
Um, but to, just to really amplify what she said, that it, it does. It draws people in and it makes it memorable. You can't bore people into learning. You can put up a PowerPoint with 15 different points and they're not going to remember it. But you tell a really interesting story around it and then they remember the story and then the lesson within the story. And we know this works. We start doing this with our children. I mean, we teach them the parable of the tortoise and the hare, the slow and steady wins the race. We teach them Goldilocks and the three bears, which is apparently avoid breaking and entering. There's important <laughs> lessons there. And so that's how they remember the, le- you know, if you break and you're going to get eaten by bears. It's your fault. Um, so it's that's how we actually remember the lesson behind the lesson. Because nobody, I mean, do you remember in college, did you ever have that professor, and I'm, this is how old I am before PowerPoint, that the, the overhead slides, and then they would have a bunch of words on the slides and then read them to you. I'm like, can we just assume we're all literate and just move on to the interesting stuff? But I had a, a teacher, I took a history of war class as one of my electives, just it was fascinating. And instead of reciting a bunch of dates and this many people at this battle and this general, this guy, I just got up and told stories of how the war happened in the background, the thing. And I have kind of an absurd amount of war trivia now still in my head ages later because of the story around it. So I think it's really, really important to to teach that way. I just want to add also, because we've, we've focused a little bit on teaching, but not everybody who listens to this wants to be the one doing the teaching. And But I, most people, I think, are medical practitioners of some kind. The other really important thing that storytelling does is it allows you to connect on a human level with people. And so we do this... You know, whether you're intentionally doing this or not, you're probably doing this with your patients when you're, you share some anecdote about yourself or another patient that you saw. Um, or you do this with your colleagues, right? When you're having a beer after a shift and you're telling these crazy war stories, this is how we connect as human beings. And it can be a really powerful way to do that. If you're, if you're not intentionally doing it yet, you could do this intentionally more as a way to connect with people. I, I use that with patients. Uh, you know, those ones, they they fell and their x-ray doesn't show a fracture, but you really want them to know and understand they could have an occult fracture. So I tell the story of how I was walking into work, slipped on the ice like a cartoon character on a banana peel, like feet up in the air, stuff everywhere, fell on my hand. I knew that it hurt really bad, got an x-ray, and the x-ray was negative. So, of course, my coworker called me a huge baby and told me to get back to work. And then a week later when I followed up, it was clearly broken. It wasn't missed the first time. It just didn't show yet. You know, s- stuff like that. So then the patient, when they come in a week later and the fracture shows, they understand, they'll remember how I'm an absurd uh, cartoon character. <laughs> I do almost the exact same thing for rib fractures because I had a very, very personally traumatic fall in the shower one time. And I did not break my ribs. I got an x-ray. There were no rib fractures, but I, you know, must have torn or bruised an intercostal muscle, something. But the pain was extraordinary. So I'll tell the patients, it doesn't matter whether you broke your rib or not. We're treating it the same and it's incredibly painful no matter what. And let me tell you why. I know. And this is what I took and this is how you're going to get through it. That's, I broke, I <laughs> cracked mine, did the same thing, but I was uh, an usher at a movie theater. It was a very important job. So I was slipped on some butter and all my weight hit one of those movie theater uh, chair things. So That just feels like a cliche. I know. It was, I, I, I should slip in the shower balls. like a normal person. I feel like we should say it. We're <laughs> cliche <laughs> Well, I've only had the one, but uh, I think the sitcom background is coming back to curse me. It's pretty cheesy. Like the, my injuries are lame. No, but I love that you bring that up because I think it is a way for us to connect with patients. Um, you know, because I I can think of I don't know maybe the last few dozen times I've had to give less than optimal news, and when I say that, like less than optimal news of hey everything's fine. Like I know you're here with a ton of complaints. 
I know you wanted an answer, but we don't have one. And so I'm able to use either a personal story or a family you story. You mean 70% of the people that come to the emergency department get diagnosed with a... S- your diagnosis is your chief complaint. Yes. <laughs> you are yeah, nauseous. I'm probably yeah, higher than I'm 70, I'm so sorry right? you spent that amount of money to be, know, to be told what you already know. You are nauseous. Um, but you can use that to kind of at least make them feel reassured that like, hey, I had this happen and everything was fine uh, and you'll be fine too. So, Well, and if you think about it, it's the same basis as when we're talking to family and friends um, and they ask you a question or want to hear a story um, because everyone thinks that our lives are like, you know, the TV show ER or something crazy like that. And when we communicate those stories, we're trying to have them a enjoy it, but B kind of get a little view into our lives. We want to share our experiences with them. And the same thing goes with our patients. You know, we, we are trying to explain to them so that they remember and can, f- can understand what we are trying to communicate. Um, storytelling is such a fun thing. That was one of my favorite classes in college was creative writing. And, um, it, it is such an intricate thing to try to do a, a really deep analysis of how to create a perfect story. Um, long in the long form, uh, which in, in our world, in the ER is very opposite. We're trying to find very short, concise, awesome stories of like, I slipped on a banana peel style, fell back. Like I, I can envision everything that Jamie did and I will not forget that now. So storytelling, powerful, powerful. I think, so one of the next things that I think we should probably talk about is how do you choose to tell a story? And this may come into a couple different contexts, like how do you choose the timing? How do you choose what story to tell? Um, that kind of stuff. Do you guys have any specifics or guides to do, uh, to that? Well, let's start with like when you're teaching, right? When you're kind of crafting a, a talk. I think one trap I think I see people fall into there is that um, people really like to try and tell dramatic stories. So we feel like the story has to have some really tragic component or frightening component in order to get that emotional reaction from the audience that we're looking for. But you got to remember that all stories, if done right, can have some kind of emotional impact. So Jamie's story is not tragic or um, what I bruised my it's, dignity it's, really hard. Come but on. it's funny. That's a tragedy. <laughs> yes, you, I'm sure you did. But it's funny, right? And so f- humor is a great way to also engage with your audience and get their emotional wheels turning in a way that they're good, then then remember things. So I think one thing to keep in mind is just remember that there's all sorts of types of stories you can tell, and it doesn't always have to be about that terrible case where such a, such, a, such and such horrible thing happened and the patient died and we were all devastated about it, right? You can pick all sorts of different things. And then from there, you want, you you know, I'm sure Tanner, you talked about this in your storytelling work, you know, course, was you got to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So a story, tell, a story has to have more than just one little anecdote. It has to have some kind of structure to it to actually tr- really capture the whole story. Yeah, that's, it's kind of funny too. Uh, a lot of times the stories that we're telling patients, um, you talk about beginning, middle, and end, and a, it's sometimes very difficult for us to communicate what is going to be the middle and the end? Because we're on the front end usually. You know, yeah. if we're giving a, a, a bad diagnosis to somebody um, and they ask a question of, well, what's next? We use some stories to help try to project what could happen and what the final outcome will be. But most of the time it's kind of shrouded in, in kind of a little bit of a mystery because we don't know yet. We don't have enough information. And so being able to uh, 
generate a story that will help communicate that and also set up expectations, but then kind of reading the room, like, do they need encouragement? Do they need hope? Do they need uh, a reality check? Um, being able to kind of find that balance between the two is really tough sometimes. Oh, for sure. For sure. Often those stories will end up with, you know, you, you'll tell either a very specific story or a general story of this is what's going to happen here in the ER. And then we're going to have some results and then it could go one of these different directions. But right now we're just going to stay right here. You kind of always end up backtracking. You know, you, you take them through this mental story of where you're going to go and then you bring them back to where we are in their story currently. So They're like, oh, oh so you want me to come with you? I'm like, no, I, I want you to just, <laughs> just stay in this bed and then things will happen after I yeah. leave. Things are going to happen. I told you, you everything, but no, but you stay here. We have, I mean, we have such a repertoire of stories. Think about like the person that you got like took fleas and feces and maggots off of the, you know, somebody you disimpacted a dislocated elbow when you were jumping on a trampoline with your BFF when you were 10. <clears throat> um, you know, the person that chose to, that was actually her, not me. I was the other 10 year old that thought it would be a good idea to try and fix her elbow and no, that I became a doctor. Started my career in medicine. That's that's what we call foreshadowing in the storytelling world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good. <laughs> so so we have them, and they're they're just like you know the bricks that build the foundation of who they are. So what brick do I need in this situation? Reading the room. Do they want something funny or lighthearted? You know, I went through all of this the pancreatic cancer stuff with my mother-in-law. I know an absurd amount about chemo. What it's like if someone doesn't want to eat. You know, is that the time for? One of those stories, the you know, the funny one where she passed out on her mac and cheese because she was really high on marijuana trying to increase her appetite or, you know, the, the, the sad one of, you know. So having all of those and we have such rich lived experiences as humans, as physicians. So it just brings up that opportunity and then choosing the, you know, the, the story that for your audience, it's amazingly effective. Yeah, I think you have to start with thinking about, like you guys said, what who the audience is. You know, so you're picking age and audience appropriate mm -hmm. stories. And then what emotion do you want to get from them? And what is the parallel? Like, you know, what is the lesson or thing that you're then, are, if you're going to use the story to then transition into some medical teaching or whatever, how does it connect? Because um, you don't want to just tell some random story <laughs> just, just, just to tell it. An episode of Friends know. and done. Right. You know, you have to make it connect. So you have to start by thinking about those things and then give it time, right? So if you're working on crafting a lecture or something, you have to think about those things and then let that simmer for a while. That's not, like Jamie said, we have so many stories we could tell. You have to give your brain time to find the right one. So be, be thinking about those things well in advance so you can percolate it and then keep a notebook around or whatever so that you can jot it down when it comes to you. One of the ideas, uh, one of the, the people listening to us talk right now, watching us talk right now, uh, Michael Oster said, is it's kind of the same thing you're just talking about. When dealing with pediatric patients, he likes to do a magic show during the history and physical, which is a really neat idea. It's, it's storytelling in a slightly different way, but it's making a show mm -hmm. out of what's going on and, and getting the kid engaged. So I like that as a very pediatric appropriate uh, way. So, so thanks, Michael, for sharing that with us. And it doesn't have to be exactly a story necessarily about a person, but something memorable. With my concussion instructions, because there's a lot of people's auntie, neighbor, or internet that tells them, wake up every four hours. We all know that's physiologically the worst thing they can do. So I tell people, imagine you just severely sprained your ankle really, really bad. And then every four hours, I ask you to get up and jump on that ankle to see if it's still sprained. Now, shouldn't we treat your brain as kindly as we treat your ankle 
And now everyone in the family in the room are like, oh, okay, we won't wake them up. So it's a that other than saying don't do wake up, they're going to go home and read on the internet. You should. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there's lots of different ways to use like like magic tricks and like things like that to just to c- connect it to something. That is fantastic. I'm totally stealing that from my everybody. Do I teach all my residents that? So that this is like permanent concussion instructions. Everybody can use that. It's very fun. I used to Sometimes, if you if you want to get really dramatic, hop on your ankle. It just adds adds to the flair. I used to just tell them their parents were wrong. <laughs> that was my story. I'm like, you, when, your, par- when your parents wrong. woke you up every four hours, they were wrong. They were doing the wrong thing. Don't be that parent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so speaking of storytelling and find the right thing for the right moment, both of you have incredible stories that I have listened to during more formal presentations where you make yourself vulnerable and really become emotional and let the audience become emotionally attached to what you're talking about to drive home a point. And sometimes that's medical management and sometimes that's management of yourself during a difficult medical situation. That's a really difficult thing to do. And it's something that I think we're getting a little better about in medicine is making ourselves vulnerable. But both of you are kind of on the forefront of doing that. So tell us a little bit about how you make yourself vulnerable when telling a story. It's one thing to jump up and down on your ankle and, and drive home the point that way. But it's it's different when it's personal and, and you're sharing emotion and struggle and failure. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of talks about things like imposter syndrome and stuff like that. And so to just stand up there and say, you know, imposter syndrome exists, here's a couple statistics, and, you know, then you're all better. And here's the treatment. Somebody has to go first to start that conversation. And what we have is a position of privilege. We are respected educators. We have credentials and stuff like that, which is nice for, you know, whatever that gets you. But, But to have that a level of achievement and be willing to say, not only laugh at myself because I slip like on a banana peel like a cartoon character, but that I have struggled with imposter syndrome, that I have struggled with burnout, that I have taught resilient skills and then needed to use them myself because I'm going through struggles. I, you know, very recently, I'm actually currently going through a struggle. Somebody I love very much, I had to bring the police over to their house, knock down the door basically petition them and bring him to the hospital and alcohol liver failure. He's 42 years old. And now I'm dealing with the aftermath and the struggle and, and the emotion of that. And to, to come out and say, everybody's life is perfect all the time. And those of us who you see teaching, resi- oh yeah, we're so resilient. Every day is perfect. It sets up, I think that's harmful to people who are listening because you have to see that everybody is going through something and by opening up and sharing in that way, it shines the light and gives other people permission to do the same. And when we can all connect more authentically and vulnerably, we can protect each other. You guys, we see some crazy stuff. The work I do in human trafficking is some of the most emotional, exhausting, awful, terrible stuff. And so to not have people that I can reach out and talk to or say, I had a crappy case or I had a talk and die or I missed something. And have that and then have people be receptive to reach out and do that and create that community. I think we need that so much. So uh, somebody's got to be willing to go first. Yeah, I think that's so important uh, as, as we have started to address it slowly more and more over the last, it almost feels like just few years. Um, it, it, you can see the impact it's starting to have, at least the people who are trying it. And one of the things that I've started doing very similar is, if, if you're not feeling comfortable sharing with like, let's say your colleagues or someone else because you are embarrassed or, you know, bad outcome or with, with a patient, something like that, you know, try it on friends or family. Um, and you don't have to do it like a, like a, we're not talking like a party or anything, but like, you know, 
uh, whether it's my wife or you know a close friend or something like that, I tell them about a bad outcome or a case that just didn't go the way I wanted it to. Because everybody the, needs a fail friend. Yeah. Someone yeah. that you can talk to about that kind of like literally fail friend. Write that down. Who are your fail friends? Yeah. That you yeah, yeah you can call when you're ugly crying or something went bad. That is, that's perfect. That's exactly the, the concept. And that's like a, a really easy way to kind of dip your toe in the water of sharing and being open and vulnerable about some of these stories that we hold on tight. I mean, in just in the last few days on social media, I've seen several posts about physician suicide and things like that. And that is why this isn't so important is so for us to start to share these stories that we really want. So a, we can offload some of these emotional stressors we're holding on to, but B also, it, you know, help people understand what we're actually going through. Yeah. I mean, I would second everything that you guys said. And then I would add, um, or kind of build off a little bit of what Jamie was saying about the community building element of it. I think by becoming one of the people who is willing to be vulnerable and human publicly, you allow, like Jamie said, other people to do the same. And, you know, selfishly, then you get to hear people's stories. So we don't, um, go to conferences anymore, <laughs> real ones. But if you go to a conference and you are vulnerable on the stage and you tell stories about yourself, then people will find you to tell you theirs uh, because you've made yourself a safe person. And that does wonderful things. It builds connection with your colleagues and a sense of community. It also builds your repertoire of stories because now you have stories you can you know, borrow from. Not ev not every story that everyone tells all the time happened exactly to them exactly the way that they tell it, obviously, right? Because A, memory is weird, and B, storytelling, you know, the story might be better if you change it a little bit, right? So now people tell you their stories that then you can borrow. So one of my favorite cases that I talk about in a GYN lecture I give is actually Risa Lewis's case because Risa told me about it and, and I said, can I use that in this lecture? And she said, of course. So I borrowed a case from someone else and I use it in a lecture. So if you do that, if you put yourself out there, it comes back to you. That's perfect. Even last night I was using someone else's story to help a colleague who was second guessing themselves on a procedure make them feel okay that no, you're, you're completely fine. You've done everything appropriate here. Um, but I use someone else's story that helped convey that to them. Um, and it was, it, you could just see them kind of go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm all right. And I think we need those moments for that. Just really briefly, I'll tell you a, a quick story as we're talking about stories. But a, a newer colleague of mine had, you know, had trained under us and was now in attending, was doing a procedure with a well-respected senior resident. Um, they were doing a, a center line, you know, plus or minus whether that was indicated was up for debate later. Uh, in a patient with lung cancer, really severe lung problems, okay, dropped the lung as, as one does when it's in that critical case. Well, as they're putting in the chest tube, lose a piece of the glove in there. So now the patient has horrible lungs, a pneumothorax, and a piece of glove. And both of them, both of them were like, I quit. I just, I, I sh I'm not qualified. I suck. I shouldn't be here. And so, and, and I didn't want to out them in the story, but I, I went on EM Docs. I love that Facebook group. It's a supportive place. And I said, you know, here's a situation that happened to someone um, or no, I said I had a, I had a colleague who had um, a bad outcome from a procedure. Who else has struggled with a bad outcome? I'll go first. Yeah. And then I tell the story about how I was doing a blind subclavian. Yes, kids, that was a thing. Um, when I was an intern in the SICU and the resident was like eight feet tall and terrifying and hairy. And he was like, 
damn it, hope, don't lose the wire. Don't let, I was like, he's scaring the daylights out of me because I barely know how to do it. And I'm shaking and I do the whole procedure and I get good blood return, blah, blah, blah. And I swear to God, you guys, I had a death grip on that wire. I, I was going to take it home with me. I had that wire so tight and I sewed everything up and everything was great. And, and so the next morning I'm checking eyes and nose. That patient already had a chest tube but pre my lines, so that's why I was less worried about putting in the subclavia, and that was like multi-trauma. So the next morning, I'm doing the eyes and nose, and exactly how much we put through the subclavian uh, in clear fluid came out that chest tube. Uh, so I went through and through, apparently, at some point when I sewed it down, and that senior resident came in, and he's like, at least you didn't lose the goddamn wire, and just walked out. <laughs> <laughs> and so I told my fail story, saying one of my colleagues had a screw up and they're feeling awful. And then 600 posts later of everybody sharing their stories. And then I texted them, like, go look on EM docs. You're not alone. And I didn't out them or share their story. So it, it does matter. And those, those borrowed stories, he really wasn't eight feet tall. I will admit that's not true, but he is like six one. <laughs> that feels like eight feet tall to me. I mean, it's like weather, you know, it's like 75 degrees out, but feels like 78. So, right. You know, every, every time I teach uh, floating a pacer to my residents, I tell the story about the first time I floated a pacer and our other host, uh, John Casey, who's not here right now, uh, was supervising me at the time. And he tells me at least three times, don't forget to put the, the cover on before you float the pacer. I forgot to put the cover on before I floated the pacer. And, you know, so, Hey, it's okay. This yeah. is going to happen. We're all going to make these mistakes. Here's what I did. Here's how I, you know, and every time an attending tells their, their trainee, student, resident, whatever, hey, I've made that mistake. I've done that because we've all done it. Uh, it it, it makes, makes that learning a little easier, makes it okay to make mistakes. Uh, I'm not as good at either of you as, as putting myself on a national stage and making myself vulnerable. But I, I sure make myself vulnerable on shift. So uh, I'm getting there. Baby steps. Baby, baby steps. So, so with that being said, I think storytelling is a, a huge part. I think we all agree of what we do in terms of educating and um, in, in the department. And I think it's probably, you know, one way for us to 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 relate with people now. I, I don't know if you guys have all felt this way, but I feel like there's really two camps. And I'm talking about COVID, so I apologize if we talk about this again. But um, you know, I think everybody has the family members that are in the anti-COVID camp and the pro-COVID camp, right? And I have found that. Um, it doesn't matter how many statistics I throw at my anti-COVID family members or even my colleagues. Just I can throw them numbers, cases, deaths. Um, but I've been able to turn the tide with some of them by telling stories. I'd be like, look, yeah. I get it. You don't think COVID's real. I wish I could get – well, I don't wish I could give you, but let me tell you about my last shift and kind of walk them through working in the COVID ICU and intubating four patients and having the, hey, I can either intubate your grandma and she'll die in seven days or you can say goodbye tonight, those kind of conversations. And then at the end of that 30-minute dialogue, then being like, you know, I think I'm going to go get vaccinated. Like, because the numbers didn't matter, but the personal touch and, you know, having them, giving them a glimpse of the, you know, just what we have gone through in healthcare was enough for them to be like, I need to be a part of the solution. So let's go, be, let's go help. Um, and I feel like that's, if there's ever a time to be a good storyteller, it's in 2021 over the, who knows how long this is going to go on for the next few years. Well, we see that exactly that play out on social media all the time, right? Um, on Twitter, it, the things that'll go viral and seem to actually impact a lot of people are the doctors telling the personal story about such and such happened and then this patient and then that patient. And then maybe there's a, a photo of them with their post mask face and it's all bruised. And that personal stuff matters way more than all of the, you know, summaries of the data that we can 
put on social media. Yeah, and sometimes people just choose to not even believe the data. And mm-hmm. it, it's crazy right now. I know I, like I said earlier, in the first spike of the pandemic, uh, Detroit came in third. Uh, so we got the bronze. Apparently right now we're going th- for the gold. So I don't know if you've seen us on the news. We're fighting with Florida. Yeah, I know. We're, we're going neck and neck. Yeah, we're winning. Yeah. Are we? But so like to, to see that and say, you know, like, oh, this isn't real. Let's all go do all this stuff. But I'm like, I'd love you to see the hot mess we are after a shift. Like this is this is like makeup. This is not how real life looks. It's it looks like scary. It looks like death watching somebody guppy breathing the first spike of the pandemic where we had no PPE and we're crying for it. And I'm wearing a shoe cover on my head at work. Those are the kind of things that help stick with people more. Yeah, that's that's why storytelling matters, right? I mean, numbers we become numb to, but it, it's hard to mm-hmm. not become emotionally engaged in an actual story from somebody who experiences it firsthand. That's kind of a heavy note uh, to leave things on. It's such a <laughs> poignant example of why storytelling is so important um, in medicine, whether we're trying to educate our learners or whether we're trying to educate the public. And we talked a lot about public health yesterday. Uh, Jamie, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us about this. Andy, I, you have to have another card in there in that deck that is funny that we can end on a positive note before we close this <laughs> oh, out. Oh, tons. Absolutely. Well, I- do you want to go first? And on shoe cover on the head. Nobody I, wants to go back to those days. I know, right? Jenny, do you have, I have, say we both have a funny story. You go first. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. This is more from whoa, a card to a story. Jenny's like, like uh, one, hey, you know what? I'll take this funny story as opposed to a funny card for us to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, well, first off, just these are the support group cards that I got. So, Drew, I'm glad you didn't bring that up today. But um, you, you brought it up. Yeah. Andy, Andy's part of a podcasting support group. He has a problem. He has a problem. (laughs) The first step is admitting you have a problem. All right. So one to five. Tanner, why don't you pick them? We'll all answer this one. Uh, Two. Two. Good number. What's the weirdest tradition your family has? So we can get personal and finish funny. All right. Hey, so everyone's thinking, I'm going to throw this out there. I, um, my, my mom's half of the family. I think I've talked about this on a previous episode. We're, um, Jewish. So Thanksgiving is our holiday, right? That's when the whole family gets together um, because that way the the non-Jewish um, members of the family, they can all have Christmas. But but Thanksgiving's not as cool, right? Like there's no Santa. I mean, it's super cool, but there's not there's no Santa. So we created the Turkey Man. And I've seen the Turkey and, Man. And this is my – this started as uh, – well, it was actually my uncle's father started this tradition. But, the, I mean, we're talking about like a whole turkey outfit, dress, shoes, face, you know, whole thing – and delivers presents to all the kids during Thanksgiving dinner. It is zany, but it is an absolute blast. And and uh, recently, well, it's been a couple of years since we've we've done it because now everything's been small for the last uh, Thanksgiving. But uh, had my son dress up as the turkey man and hand out uh, gifts at Thanksgiving dinner. I have oh, witnessed I the turkey it. man. It is fantastic. So he's he's old enough now. He no longer believes that turkey man is real, huh? The magic is gone. No, he's the turkey man. <laughs> um. Ours is much less sophisticated, so I got this uh, toy skeleton, and I'm actually sad it's not in here. It's, you know, yay big, for a lecture, because I was doing it through Zoom to to emphasize something, and it was, I mean, it's a Halloween skeleton. It looks kind of absurd, and so my kids were like, what the heck, and so we started um, hiding it on each other. Like, I first started off small, like, stick it in my daughter's bed, have it in the bathtub, but they have gotten so elaborate. Like they had it sitting on my toilet with a laptop, with headphones, like with a cute little scarf. I mean, like the the level of creativity they've had it cooking is so funny. 
So we just went on this little road trip, and so we brought Skelly with us, or I hid Skelly, Skelly in the car to bring with us to surprise them while we were there. And so fast forward to the car breaking down and us having to get rescued by the police. And so the kid, we're getting stuff out of the car and the officer reaches for something and pulls out a skeleton because <laughs> he's trying to help me with my suitcase. And I let my kids bring their toy like axe and mace and stuff. And he's just like, maybe y'all do belong in the back of a police car. So Skelly got to ride in the back of a police car. That was his best adventure yet. I'm just trying to imagine TSA digging through your bags once you're allowed to fly again and uh, you know coming up with Skelly. Yeah, probably won't make it. Probably won't make it. There'll, there'll be a nice TSA card there. So I'll, I'll go on the same thing with uh, with Jamie. So I, I this was not a thing that I did when I was a kid, but it's been adopted by my my kids by my wife's family, and it's something really simple. It's called find the Smurf, and we have a little Smurf figurine. And uh, we will spend hours where, you know, anywhere on the first floor, somebody will hide it. And then we just have to find this little Smurf figurine. And I, we will literally hours on Sundays because we try not to limit um, uh, our kids' TV on the weekends. And so Find the Smurf has become a mainstay of our weekends where our kids will be like, Dad, can we play Find the Smurf? To the point where, like, I have to hide the Smurf permanently because sometimes I don't like playing Hide the Smurf. It's like, I just want, I want two <laughs> hours off where there is no Hide the Smurf going on because it has become, but we do it on vacation. This, you know, whenever we go places, we'll hide the Smurf and it's become, it's become like a really fun, cool thing, but also really weird that it's just this little plastic 1980s McDonald's toy Smurf that, that we got from my in-laws when we were married. It was like, here is your Smurf. And I was like, I don't know what this is for. And then now I know what it's for. So. <laughs> that is really funny. I like it. Um, mine that came to mind is not really a tradition so much as just like an odd thing that if some outside people witnessed my family doing would be like, what? Um, and by my family, I mean like my parents, siblings, that level of family. And there's some banging happening in my apartment building. So I'm sorry if you're hearing that. Um, that's the luxuries and joys of New York living. So my I'm not the only person with a theater background in my family. Pretty much everybody is. So when we will go to the theater, which we love doing, after we will, or a dance performance or or anything, um, we will almost always love whatever we see, but we will rip it to shreds. So our discussion after the fact, which we always will discuss heavily, whatever we've witnessed, like it's like this huge discussion. We'll go out to dinner afterwards and we'll just like talk, you know, scene by scene through what we've seen. And even, you know, like a a wonderful, beautiful Broadway show that we loved every moment of, we will will go through like, well, I didn't love this or maybe this could have been better or I could have, I would have liked it if they did this or there's one part maybe could have had a little bit more of this, which is a very weird thing that we like we're i guess we might maybe my parents were training us as theater critics or something yeah, as critics from the muppets that's what you guys are yeah, yeah i guess but but the thing is we yeah. loved it it's just we're talking about all of the parts of it that we thought could have nice. been different i don't know it's an outsider would yeah, think it's really weird and i've met your family they're so nice. nice they're so oh, they're, they're, they're not like they're, they're not mean nice. people they're incredibly no. nice humans and they will, and I'm telling you, they will stand at you know, the stage door just to tell somebody how amazing they were. Like, that's what they will do. But then afterwards at dinner, we'll talk about, like, maybe this could have been better. Or I would have liked this. Or this costume was a little weird. No, and, and at, at my first interaction <laughs> with Jenny's uh, mom, Mama Bekesme, uh, she gave me some, she gave me, like, a hug after I gave a lecture at Rebel. And then at dinner that night, let me know what I could have done better. So, no, this is, this is a thing. It's 100% a thing. So, but, <laughs> yeah. oh, but, all, but all really good feedback, by the way. So. I'm having flashbacks yeah, you know, to Mystery I, Science Theater 3000 as a kid watching that. Like, 
I, I did. I brought my parents to Reb, the Rebel Conference what, the first year. Well, both years. And um, after after I did my talk, my dad said, you know, this this was so great. And I loved this and this and this. But I think you should probably wear lipstick. Like, I think when you're under the stage lights, you should probably wear some lipstick. And I was like, yeah, you know, like you're a stage yeah. dad. You're right. I should probably have worn better lipstick. Good point. Next time I, I will. bring us home. <laughs> uh, they have some kind of random ones, but I'll, I'll probably stick with probably my favorite newest one. Um, and this may eventually be grown out of because our son is three and if he gets older, he may stop doing this. But my, one of my favorite little mini traditions we have at home right now is whenever we decide to do ice cream night, um, we bring it up. And when it, my wife first told my son about ice cream to like say, hey, do you want to have some ice cream? She whispered it to him. And so he has picked that up that you don't say ice cream loudly. You whisper it only. And so now oh any night we say, Hey bud, do you want to have some dessert or do you want to have, maybe have some ice cream? He responds with ice cream. Like it's like really quiet. Like you can barely hear him. And so our whole family pretty much whispers ice cream now. Like it's almost like it's a, it's a, a curse word. You're not supposed to say out loud. We just, is it okay to have ice cream? And, um, yeah, so I, I don't know if that'll stick for forever, but I love it right now because it just makes me smile. Oh, Un- unsolicited advice because kids do the cutest stuff and the, the stuff that they say, like my son, we, we would do fist bump, then elbow bump, then shoulder bump, and then eye bump became a thing. <laughs> so that he would like run up to like eye bump. Um, right. And you forget. And so, and I, I write letters to my, my kids and you know, Hey, Christopher, like, this is what you're doing right now. This is your favorite color. You play with this truck all the time and you love to do eye bump. You gave me a black eye, but you laughed and you <laughs> thought it was great. So right Cause eventually if they forget, so just it's, it's fun. And you'll look back at those memories and be like, Oh, that was so sweet. My kids think the uh, punch monkeys from Croods right now are hilarious. So they're, they're into oh, punching. Also, so that's a great face. <laughs> Jenny, Jamie, thank you again so much for joining us. Incredible talk about storytelling. You two are absolutely inspirations when it comes to telling stories for educational and other purposes. So thank you so much for joining us. 